0: So impermanence. Impermanence is an understanding that everything that arises is of course subject to passing away. And the word in Pali for this is anicca, A-N-I-C-C-A, anicca. It's the teaching that all Sankaras S, another poly word, Sankhara, S-A-N-K-H-A-R-A. It means made together or put together or concocted. So this um, little clock is a sankara. It was concocted of plastic and more plastic and uh, letters and then there's all this, you know, engineering that goes inside of it and Some little doodads on it. The color black was painted somehow on it. So it's concocted. And the same with these bells. It's concocted of metal and string and whatever goes into metal to make metal metal. Uh, The same with this piece of paper. It's been concocted. It's a sankara. came from a tree that needed sunlight that needed rain to grow that eventually got made into paper and the ink to make the lines came from its own thing. So just about everything you see is a Sankara. All concocted, including me. And I guess that means you too. We're all Sankaras all concocted. So the teaching on impermanence is that all sankaras are impermanent. And the Buddha talked a lot about Anicca. In fact, he talked about it in his very first sermon and his very last. In the first sermon he gave, we learn that upon gaining stream entry, the first level of enlightenment, one has a transformative insight into impermanence. And in the Buddha's dying words, he urgently calls us to awaken because of the truth of our own impermanence. So, Anicca figures prominently in the teachings. And it's important for us to understand, even if at first it's only intellectually. And even if we've had an understood experience of impermanence, which is more than intellectual, an understood experience is uh, an experience of insight. So even if we've had an understood experience of impermanence, we still can sometimes forget its truth. All concocted things, all sankaras are impermanent, including our sense of self. We look in the mirror in the morning, and a sense of a very permanent, solid self arises with the reflection we see. The self that likes or doesn't like what is seen. We turn around and we see something we like and crave to have. And with the arising of that craving, a different permanent solid self, sense of self arises. The sense of self that has to have that thing it sees that it craves to have. And the object of our craving too seems solid and permanent and unchanging. We turn around again and we see something we don't like and crave not to have. And with the arising of that craving, yet another permanent sense of self arises, a self that craves to push that object away and that object seems permanent too. At best we forget and at worst we're in denial of the fact that all concocted things are impermanent. In the moment of perception they seem permanent but everything is subject to change in future moments. And a lot of change occurred to bring the concocted thing into its present existence. Even in the present moment, change is occurring to bring concocted things to their next state. So when we are not mindful of the truth of impermanence. We live in an illusion of permanency and solidity. And we can suffer as a result. We suffer when the things that we like change, and we suffer when the things that we don't like don't change fast enough. We want the stuff that we like to stick around forever. So we pretend it will to avoid suffering without realizing that denial just adds a whole nother layer of suffering on top. Conversely, we have little confidence the stuff we don't like is impermanent. We don't want the stuff we don't like to stick around but we forget that it too is subject to change and we get all worked up in the face of things we don't like as if it will never change we have no confidence of their impermanence too so we just live in a fantasy of permanence and it sets us up for all kinds of suffering both in life and in the dying process. We crave to have the things that are pleasant, and we crave not to have the things that are unpleasant. With regard to the things that are pleasant, we crave to have them as if the objects of our desire can provide us with lasting happiness. And we procrastinate in perfecting the Noble Eightfold Path, because we really don't believe that we're impermanent either. In the last century, Piyadasi Tara, a Buddhist monk in Sri Lanka, wrote these I think, uh, salient words about impermanence. He said, the sum total of the philosophy of change taught in Buddhism is that all component things, he calls them component things, let's say all concocted things. So the sum total of the philosophy of change taught in Buddhism Is that all concocted things that have conditioned existence are a process and not a group of abiding entities? But the changes occur in such rapid succession that people regard mind and body as static entities. They do not see their arising and their breaking up, but regard them unitarily, seeing them as a lump or a whole. He goes on, It is very hard indeed for people who are accustomed to continually thinking of their own mind and body and the external world as wholes to get rid of the false appearances of wholeness. So long as man fails to see things as impermanent processes, as movements, he will never understand the doctrine of the Buddha. So we need to see things more as processes than entities, more as verbs than nouns. Sankaras are concocted. They went through change to get in their present condition. They're changing in their present condition, and they're going to change in the future into a different state altogether. It's all verbs, including us. In the Buddha's first sermon, in uh, the Setting the Wheel of Dharma in Motion Sutta, which we talked about the very first night, the Buddha tells his five ascetic friends about his recent awakening and his insight into the Four Noble Truths, which, as you'll remember, is that suffering is to be comprehended, craving for things to be different is to be abandoned, the cessation of suffering is to be realized, and the path of practice leading to that cessation is to be developed. In other words, the Noble Eightfold Path. So the Buddha gave this sermon to these five ascetic friends of his who he had been practicing with. And uh, Kondanya was one of those five ascetics who was listening, who heard the teaching. And upon hearing it, at the conclusion of the teaching, Kondanya attains to stream entry, the first level of awakening. The sutta says, and while this teaching on the four noble truths was being given, there arose in venerable Kandanya the dustless, stainless dhamma-eye. Then the sutta explains the insight Kandanya gained by the arising of the dustless, stainless dhamma-eye, which was that whatever is subject to arising, is all subject to cessation. In other words, with the arising of this dustless, stainless dhamma Eye, Kandanya gained an insight into impermanence. Kandanya, now a stream enterer, has had an understood experience, He did not intellectual, but an understood experience of whatever is subject to arising is all subject to cessation. At the end of the sutta, uh, the Buddha realizes the effect the teaching has had on Kandanya. And he looks at him and he says, so you really know Kandanya? So you really know? The first person the Buddha taught who attained uh, to stream entry, the first level of awakening a stream enter really knows anicca it's not just an intellectual understanding it's not yet the complete understanding of impermanence that a fully enlightened being has but it's more of an understanding of impermanence than one had before gaining stream entry in the anguttara nikaya the Buddha makes clear that a stream-enterer also understands dependent origination. Thani in his book, Entering the Stream, explains that the realization of a stream-enterer conveyed by the dhamma Eye, is not just an insight into the fleeting and permanent nature of ordinary existence, although that's true too, but the stream-enterer also realizes the conditioned, dependent nature of that experience. The Dhamma eye sees that things arise and pass away in line with a particular type of conditionality. In other words, a stream enter really gets impermanence, and how suffering is conditioned by impermanent concoctions. I'll talk more about stream entry later in the retreat. In the Sutta, in the the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha explains that a stream enterer gains insight into the impermanent nature of six things sense doors or organs, our sense organs, the ears, the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the body, and uh, the mind. So this stream inner gains a insight into the impermanence of all of that, all of the sense organs, as well as, number two, the sense objects. So the objects through all those sense organs, what, the sounds that the ear hears are impermanent, the sights that the eye see are impermanent, the s- smells that the nose smells are, the tastes that the mouth tastes are, the sensations in the body are, and the thoughts in the mind are. So the organs are impermanent, the objects are impermanent. The third thing that a stream enter knows and has an understood experience of impermanence with regard to is vedana. Initial categorization of sensory input into pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Let me say that one more time. Initial categorization of sensory input, something that comes into one of those six doors, into pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I'll say a lot more about that tomorrow morning. So a stream enter has an insight into the impermanence of, of the the way sensory input is categorized into Uh, into pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and into perception, the way we label things. Man, woman, Joe, Sally, bell, paper, clock, shawl. That's perception. And also the uh, impermanent nature of mental formations, which include thoughts and emotions and memories and moods. So those of you who are familiar with the aggregates, you'll realize I've just been through them. It's, um, it, a, a stream enter understands the impermanent nature of the aggregates, which are form, which are sense objects and sense organs form, uh, Vedna, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, which I haven't mentioned yet, but that also is in the list, and as well as craving. So, insight into the impermanent nature of the five aggregates plus craving. Also in that first sermon, the Buddha listed many experiences that, can condition suffering. Um, And he winds up saying, basically he cuts to the chase and says, in short, the aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. In and of themselves, the aggregates aren't suffering, but they're subject to clinging, which makes them subject to suffering. So when a stream enter understands their impermanence, he's not so attached to them being permanent. He's, he or she is more willing to have a relaxed relationship with the aggregates and isn't as bound up in having them permanent if he likes or she likes them, or impermanent or losing confidence of their impermanence if if they're not liked. So the Buddha says at the end of the first sermon, in short, suffering is clinging to the five aggregates. As if they were permanent and unconditioned. And so, to help us see through the illusion and the delusion that the aggregates are permanent, solid, and forever lasting, the Buddha compared each one of the aggregates to ephemeral substances without a solid core. With regard to material form, which again are the organs, the sense organs, and the sense objects. So it's, He compared all of that to a lump of foam. He compared Vedna, our initial response to sensory input, as pleasant or unpleasant. He said Vedna was a bubble. And perception, the way we label things, a mirage. And mental activities are thoughts, emotions, moods, mental activities, to a hollow tree trunk. Our thoughts, a hollow tree trunk. Nothing in there. And our consciousness to a magician's illusion. And then he said, whatever aggregate there may be, form, vedna, perception, mental activities or consciousness, Whatever aggregate there may be, whether past, present, or future, so it includes a memory or anticipation of a future event, whatever aggregate there may be, past, present, or future, internal or external, mine or yours, that aggregate that one sees, meditates upon, examines with systematic attention, one would find it empty insubstantial, and without essence. What essence could there be in an aggregate which is conditioned and impermanent? So if we can see the aggregates as essenceless, without a solid core, because they're all verbs, and they're all temporary, impermanent, in process, if we can see them as essenceless, without a solid core, we won't be fooled into believing that we can somehow cling to them because there's nothing really to cling to. Without this insight, we cling to the stuff we like and we also cling to doomsday thoughts about the stuff we don't like. We forget the stuff we like will end, and we have no confidence the stuff we don't like will end too. I remember breaking my leg. um, I think it was in 2009, the lower leg uh, near the ankle on my right leg, and it was a horrible experience. I, The doctor I had was not had terrible bedside manners, and he didn't care that the cast he put on my leg was too tight. And I put it up and tried to reduce the swelling, and um, it was just unbearably painful in that cast. So bad that I had to go to the the emergency room during the process twice to get the cast sawed off, get some relief, and then they recast it. But he he was, he had absolutely no sympathy. He thought I was just, you know, being too demanding, I guess. But I was just in utter pain. Well, it, that all ended, of course, and I got my leg back and, but you know, Seven years later, I broke the same bone in the same leg, I think maybe an inch away. And the minute it broke, just about, the first time I was riding a bike, the second time I was playing with my cats, go figure. Um, the, the second time it broke, almost immediately, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to go through that tight cast business again and I'm just going to be miserable the whole six weeks. I had no confidence in the impermanent nature of that first experience. And I just immediately had dukkha, more dukkha than the pain of the leg. It was all up here. and I go through the, But I didn't go to the same doctor. I found another doctor, and um, I liked him much better. And in fact, he wrapped my leg in a way that wasn't tight at all. Um, but I was anticipating, you know, all this dukkha. Uh, it, it took me a couple weeks into it to realize this was a whole different experience. It was completely different. So I added on two weeks worth of dukkha to that experience than, than I needed to for no good reason because I had no confidence in the impermanence of that first experience. We just don't have confidence in the impermanence of things we don't like. And we treat the things we do like as if they'll last forever and suffer when they don't. In the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha talked about the danger in not seeing the impermanence in both the stuff we like and the stuff we don't. And he framed this around the eight worldly conditions, which I spoke about last night, gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, and fame and disrepute. He said, for an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, and, you know, I guess that could be us, I don't know, maybe before we started listening to Dharma talks and reading the Dharma, he says, for an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, there arise gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. But for a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, there also arise gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. So what's the difference? What's the distinction? What's the distinguishing factor between the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones and an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill, ordinary person? And then he goes into this big explanation about the different ways that different kinds of people respond to these eight vicissitudes of life. He says, when gain arises, for an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, he does not reflect, oh, gain has arisen for me. This gain is inconstant, impermanent, and subject to change. He does not discern gain as it actually is. Likewise, when loss arises for an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill, ordinary person, he does not reflect, oh, loss has arisen for me. It's inconstant, impermanent, and subject to change. He does not discern loss as it actually is. And the same is true for praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. Rather, the mind of the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill, ordinary person remains obsessed with gain and obsessed with loss, obsessed with praise, obsessed with blame, obsessed with pleasure, obsessed with pain, obsessed with fame, and obsessed with disrepute. Further, in addition to being obsessed with the eight worldly conditions, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill, ordinary person is attracted to gain and repels loss is attracted to praise and repels blame, attracted to pleasure, repels pain, and is attracted to fame and repels disrepute. But for the well-instructed disciple of the Noble Ones, he reflects instead as follows. Oh, the Buddha didn't really say oh. Oh, gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, impermanent, and subject to change. The well-instructed disciple of the Noble Ones discerns gain as it really is. Or he reflects, loss has arisen for me. It is inconstant, impermanent, and subject to change. He discerns loss as it really is. His mind does not remain obsessed with gain his mind does not remain obsessed with loss or praise or blame or pleasure or pain or fame or disrepute. He is not attracted to the gain, does not repel the loss. He is not attracted to praise and pleasure or fame, and he does not repel blame or pain or disrepute. Rather, the well instructed disciple of the Noble Ones abandons his attraction. And repulsion altogether, and is thus released from suffering associated with the eight worldly conditions. This is the difference, this is the distinction, this is the distinguishing factor between the well instructed disciple of the noble ones and the uninstructed disciple in, uh, who is uh, run of the mill and ordinary. And then the sutta finishes up by saying, gain and loss. Praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person mindfully ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind, and undesirable ones bring no resistance. His attraction and repulsion are scattered, gone to their end, they do not exist. Knowing the dustless, sorrowless state, he discerns rightly, has gone beyond becoming to the further shore. So, which worldly conditions do you hope are imper- are permanent, or do you fear are imp- are permanent? Do you hope just the good stuff is permanent or do you live in fear that the bad stuff is permanent too can we instead accept that the good stuff will end and have confidence that the bad will too one way or the other a story about an old, wise Zen priest and a little boy who live in a village, drive home the point about the Buddha's teaching on the impermanence of the eight worldly conditions. For you movie buffs, this was um, uh, Tom Hanks uh, in um, the movie Charlie Wilson's War, who told this story. I think it was Tom Hanks. Anyway, the story goes like this. There's a little boy, and on his, he's not that little, he's 14. On his 14th birthday, he gets a horse. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful. The 14-year-old boy got a horse on his birthday. And the old wise Zen master says, we'll see. Well, two years later, the boy falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And everyone in the village says, how terrible. The little boy fell off his horse and broke his leg. But the old wise Zen master says, we'll see. And then a war breaks out. And all the young men get called to go off and fight. Except the boy can't. Because his leg is all messed up from having broken it. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful. And the old wise Zen master says, we'll see. So accepting the good stuff will end and confidence the bad stuff will too. Everything changes. Ajahn Chah, a Thai forest monk in the last century used to uh, drink out of a, uh, his favorite drinking glass. I imagine he didn't have many possessions, but he had this one glass that he kind of liked, and he always uh, asked for that one. And he was teaching some nunks and lay people at one point, and it, the story got reported and came back to us. But uh, somebody in the in the audience said, "You know, why are you so attached to that glass, Ah John?" I thought we weren't supposed to be attached to things, especially concocted ones. And Ajahn said, for me, this glass is already broken. That's not the case for you. In other words, I can, I can have my glass because I, I have no confidence it's going to be here tomorrow or even the next minute. But the rest of you, you know, are attached. Um, I had a diamond necklace once. Beautiful diamond. Um, my dad wore it on his pinky finger. My dad was born in 1897. Uh, my, he was in his 50s when I was born. I was the oldest, and He had this pinky ring that he, I guess, got legally. He didn't have a lot of money. He didn't graduate from high school. But he had these two diamonds and a pinky ring he wore all the time. And he told me and my brother we would get them when he died. And sure enough, uh, he died when I was around 20 years old. And my brother got one and I got the other. And I took this diamond into a a jeweler in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I was living at the time, and had him take a look at it so he could appraise it. And he was doing his paperwork, got the diamond, put it under the microscope or whatever you have to do that with. And he just didn't say anything. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, maybe it's not a very good diamond. He says, come over here. I want you to look through this microscope. I says, Okay, what am I looking at? He says, do you see any black marks on that diamond? I said, no. Do you see any marks on that diamond at all? I said, well, I don't know what I'm looking for, but he says, that's about the purest diamond I've ever seen. This was a blue diamond, a European cut blue diamond. I think it was about five-eighths of a carat. It's the only diamond I ever had. I mean, I was poor. But um, anyway, so I had it insured and put it into a necklace and it was just beautiful, a gold necklace and I wore it every day until one day I was at the gym at a government gymnasium in D.C. working and went to work out and for some reason it was bothering me that day and I put it in my shoe and put it in the locker and it wasn't there when I got back from exercising Yeah, impermanence. Everything near and dear to us is subject to change and vanishing. Another Th- uh, famous Thai forest monk from the last century, Bhikkhu Dasa, said that nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. And in the shorter sutta on the destruction of craving, the Buddha went further and said, nothing is worth clinging to as me or mine. Not just shouldn't be, but nothing is worth clinging to as me or mine. Otherwise, it sets us up for a lot of dukkha when it changes and vanishes. The Buddha said that when a person knows that nothing is worth clinging to, to obsessing about, he abides contemplating the impermanence of pain and pleasure, contemplating its fading away, contemplating its cessation, contemplating its relinquishment. Contemplating thus, one does not crave or cling to anything in the world. And one, when one does not cling, one is not agitated. And when one is not agitated, one personally attains enlightenment. So this is the heart of the matter, not only that nothing should be clung to, as the venerable Buddha Dasa said, but that nothing is worth clinging to, as the Buddha said. It's not worth clinging to because it's all impermanent. And if we cling to impermanent things as if they're permanent, we set ourselves up for dukkha. Impermanence is just one of many things taught in the suttas. So how important is it? Well, in, a, in Sutta and then Gudaranikaya, the Buddha compared the importance of contemplating impermanence to the practice of generosity. He compared it to the practice of keeping the precepts and the, taking the refuges. And he compared it to metta, loving kindness. He said, as fruitful as the act of generosity is, Yet it is still more fruitful to go with a confident heart for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and undertake the five precepts. So we learn from this that taking refuge and keeping the precepts outranks generosity. And then he goes on. As fruitful as taking the precepts uh, and the refuges is, is, yet it is still more fruitful. To maintain loving kindness for only as long as it takes to milk a cow. So, Metta outrages generosity and going for refuge and keeping the precepts, but only for as long as it takes to milk a cow. And then he goes on. He says, as fruitful as loving kindness is, it is yet still more fruitful to maintain. Perception of impermanence, even if it's only for as long as it takes to snap a finger. And in a famous verse in the Dhammapada, the Buddha says that it is better to live one day seeing impermanence than to live to be a hundred years old without seeing it. we gain sufficient insight into impermanence, it can help us to let go of craving for things to be different than the way we want them to be, because we know it's all impermanent anyway. So if we can really gain sufficient insight into impermanence, it can help us let go of craving, which, according to the Four Noble Truths, is what conditions dukkha, Craving. So it behooves us to meditate on impermanence. Get an insight into it. Incline your mind towards investigating impermanence as an insight practice after you get your mind concentrated. The other benefit of gaining an insight into impermanence is that it loosens and ultimately let's go of our attachment to a sense of a permanent, solid self. We really get the impermanence of this self. All right, so the, that's the Buddha's first teaching. In his last teaching, on his deathbed, he once more emphasized the importance of the truth of impermanence. During his dying process, he was surrounded by 500 monks, so the sutta says, of various degrees of awakening. One of these 500 monks was his cousin and longtime attendant, Ananda. And at that time, Ananda had attained to the first level of awakening stream entry. It's reported that just before dying, the Buddha practiced the jhanas. He went from the first all the way up to the eighth and then came back down to the fourth uh, and passing into what is called parinibbana after the fourth. Parinibbana, the term meaning final release from rebirth for one who has attained a full awakening in this life. So he goes one to eight, back to four, dies. I don't know exactly how the monks, monks knew that. I mean, maybe he was like, one, two, three. <laughs> but anyway. Before entering the jhanas and passing into Parinibbana, the Buddha gave a final teaching on his deathbed. And this is what he said. It's very short. Now then, monks, I exhort you, all fabrications are subject to ending and decay. Reach consummation through heedfulness. I'll say it again. Now, monks, I exhort you, which means I urge you, I strongly encourage you, I exhort you, all fabrications, all concoctions, all sankharas, all fabrications are subject to ending and decay. In other words, his body was doing that as he was speaking. He knows. He knows. Now, monks, I exhort you, all sankharas are subject to ending in decay. Reach consummation. In other words, reach consummation of the path. Get enlightened. Don't dally. He says, reach consummation through heedfulness. Be heedful with your practice. These were his last words. If he could leave his monks with but one teaching on his deathbed, he wanted them to understand that time is of the essence. All sankaras are impermanent. Be heedful with practice in order to attain to enlightenment. So we're reminded in this teaching of the truth of impermanence in order to arouse spiritual urgency to practice. It's called samvega in Pali, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, samvega, spiritual urgency to get on with it. And the Buddha's reminder is not directed at only those who have not yet attained stream entry. According to the sutta, all 500 monks in attendance at his parinibbana were at least stream-enters, including Ananda. The Buddha didn't want them to rest on their laurels. He wanted them to get further than stream-entry. He wanted them to get full awakened, fully awakened. But of course, the Buddha's dying exhortation runs contrary to our normal mode of forgetting or being in denial of impermanence. He's pleading with us to guard against this default mode of misperceiving impermanence as permanent. And he wants us to reflect on the truth of our impermanence, our impermanence, the truth of it as a means to arouse spiritual samvega, the spiritual urgency to awaken. Contemplation of the five daily reflections is aimed at that. It helps us remember the truth of Anicca. So it's a good practice to do regularly, either one or all five of them. And so is a body sweep. Regularly. All concoctions are subject to ending and decay, most especially this mind and this body. Time is of the essence. Who knows what lies around the corner? Perhaps your favorite possession will change and vanish, like my diamond necklace. Perhaps... You'll have an accident or come down with an illness. Perhaps your beloved pet will get sick and die, or your best friend, or your grandparent, your significant other, or your grandchild, or your very own precious child. Perhaps even you or I will get sick and die. How soon? And what will that process be like? Will we have mental suffering on top of the physical suffering? About 10 days before Justin died, he was in the hospital on his hospital bed, and I was there, and he looked up at me, and he said, Mom, I'm so stressed. Contrast that with a story in Christopher Timmis's book, Light on Enlightenment. While Christopher Timmis was a monk in a monastery in Thailand, an older monk was dying. And about the old monk, Titmus says, there was a quiet acknowledgement amongst some of those living around that old monk that he was an arhat, fully enlightened. And so, during the monk's dying process, Titmus asked the dying monk about his impending death. And this is what the dying monk said. Death has searched all over this earth looking for me, but he cannot find me anywhere. This monk is not to be found here, nor there, nor in between. So what will help us the most when the things we cherish change and banish? In the Buddha's last teaching, while he was facing the ultimate impermanence, his own death, he said that liberation will be the thing that will help us the most. And reflection on impermanence can arouse a sense of urgency to help us get there. So here are some practice tips for meditating on impermanence on and off the cushion. On the cushion, concentrate the mind and incline it towards investigating the five daily recollections. Do a contemplation like we did in here, but do it with a concentrated mind. Ask if they're true and how you react to that truth. Also do regular body sweeps, especially those of you who don't like them. The body sweeps provide great insight into impermanence. Be mindful of the arising and pass away of the, of the aggregates. Commit the five of them to memory so you know what they are and understand what they are. And then with the concentrated mind, start investigating them. The, f- the six senses, including the mind and the mind objects. Vedana, which I'll talk more about tomorrow. Perception, thoughts, consciousness. Get a realistic view of the world through insight practice. See that it's all changing, that everything is a verb. Nothing is a noun. All contact through the six senses is impermanent. And all craving associated with objects is impermanent. Doesn't mean we can't fully enjoy the moments of gain and praise and pleasure and fame. But can we do it without craving? Knowing that it's all impermanent. And when you experience loss and blame and pain and disrepute, have confidence in their impermanence or the impermanence of your reaction, even. Don't procrastinate in doing the things that are most important to you, including pursuing the Noble Eightfold Path. Remember that nothing should be clung to because nothing is worth clinging to. Time is of the essence. All concoctions are impermanent. May we all be heedful with our practice and realize the goal of nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.